You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Episode 102, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today, I'm delighted to have on Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Fung is a world expert on intermittent fasting. This is absolutely something that's totally out of my wheelhouse of knowledge, but I think you're going to learn as much as I did in this discussion, where we're going to learn about not only is fasting is something to do for dietary reasons, but also there are many other benefits of fasting. And the best thing about it, if you're a cheapskate like me, it's free, and absolutely anybody can do it. And I think you'll find in the discussion that we'll talk about many of the other benefits outside of just weight control. Dr. Fung is also the author of a great many books, and you'll find those linked at the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 102. And that's also where you can find links to his website and his Twitter handle if you want to follow more closely. As you know, the Paradox Podcast is now a member of the Doctor Podcast Network, which should greatly increase the reach of our show. I have a brief message from Dr. Turner, who's also on this network. Do you feel overwhelmed by all of your different responsibilities as a partner, a parent, and a physician? Do you feel burned out or stressed out? I mean, who doesn't, right? If so, we want you to know that there is hope. Professional Coaching for Doctors has been shown to improve all of these problems. And right now, the Alpha Coaching Experience, a coaching program meant specifically for busy physicians who want to build a life they love and deserve, is open for enrollment. As part of the Fall Alpha Coaching Experience, we want to invite you to a free webinar being taught by Dr. Jimmy Turner over at The Physician Philosopher. The webinar is called Defeat Burnout Without Leaving Medicine. You can register for the free webinar by visiting thephysicianphilosopher.com slash webinar. There are only three webinars. The last one is November 1st. So don't miss out on getting some free teaching on how to coach yourself to become the best partner, parent, and physician you can be. Visit thephysicianphilosopher.com slash webinar for more information. And I'll just add that I've been on Dr. Turner's mailing list for probably over a year now. And you don't get a whole lot of email, not lots of spam. Usually just a distillation of his articles and blog posts that he writes about mainly physician and finances. So don't expect that this is going to be something that you sign up for. Get on his email list and get barraged with offer after offer. If you haven't already done so, please leave a review at your favorite podcast player, preferably five stars, and leave a written review so other people can have some idea of what the show is about and what you like about it. Continue sharing with your friends and family and colleagues. You're the reason this show is becoming more popular. And I greatly appreciate it. I hope you get a lot from this new discussion about intermittent fasting with Dr. Jason Fung. Enjoy. Well, hello, this is Eric. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Jason Fung. 
He's a nephrologist based in Toronto and the author of quite a few books. Uh, he, we're going to talk about fasting today. His at least limited titles complete, include The Complete Guide to Fasting, Life in the Fasting Lane, The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code, The Cancer Code. I'm uh, sensing a little trend there. And a number of cookbooks that go along with those codes. So Dr. Fung, thanks so much for joining the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, I had someone reach out to me, uh, one of my listeners, and said, you got to have this guy on. We want to talk about fasting. And it's not something I really knew much about. I'm an anesthesiologist, so I just you know put people to sleep and wake them up. I don't pay any attention to sort of primary care. I'm, I'm obviously aware of it, worry about the, the kidney, and so I, I worry about that sort of thing. But when it comes to you know, preventative care and sort of maintaining yourself, I don't really pay much attention to it any more than what I got in medical school, which, as you and I know, is really nothing <laughs> outside of a base, some basic physiology, right? Uh, you're a nephrologist, so kind of go into, briefly into history sort of how you got interested in this, I guess, you know, where you ended up with fasting and how that sort of became part of your practice. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's interesting because as um, we had this sort of obesity epidemic since the 1970s and then since the 1980s, you started to see more and more cases of type 2 diabetes. And uh, that is sort of the biggest cause by far of chronic kidney disease. So my practice slowly was more and more type 2 diabetes because they were developing the diabetic nephropathy, which led them to see me. And then you'd see all the sort of sequelae down the line, which was dialysis, as well as heart attacks and strokes and so on. But it became sort of more and more of a problem uh, over the years. So I became very interested in the question of first type 2 diabetes, because the whole point was that the way we thought about type 2 diabetes was not quite correct because we, we told people that type 2 diabetes is a chronic and progressive disease. And therefore, you just have to take your meds and then eventually you're going to dialysis. And that's what I did. I held people's hand until they went to dialysis and so on. But it wasn't correct because the more I thought about it, the more it was pretty obvious that that was an incorrect uh, sort of um, premise. That is, I knew and everybody knew, it wasn't a secret that if you lost weight, then your diabetes would most likely go away. Right. So why were we telling people that it was chronic and progressive? Because it was actually just a big, bad lie. It actually wasn't true in any sense. <laughs> but the problem was that you had to lose weight. And that's where the doctors were sort of stymied. They didn't know how to get people to lose weight. And therefore, they presumed that it would just keep on going. But the, the, the whole, you know, diabetic nephropathy itself, the, the, the answer sort of is in the title. That is, if your nephropathy and all the other stuff, the blindness, the amputations, like all that bad mm -hmm. stuff yeah, yeah. that goes along with the diabetes is due to the diabetes, then get rid of the diabetes. Because that's, that's the only thing that's going to work. The rest of it, the dialysis, the medications, the surgeries, the amputations, that's not going to work because it's not making your diabetes go away. So therefore, that's how I became very interested in the question of how to lose weight. So I went back and I said, okay, well, how do you get people to lose weight? Because I learned in medical school, as did we all, that it's all about calories in, calories out, right? Right. You just have to cut a few calories a day, like, you know, cut 500 calories a day and you'll lose weight. You'll lose a pound of fat a week, right? It's all about willpower and exercise and stuff. That's all the stuff that I believed because I was taught that. And as I looked into it, it was all basically garbage. Like it wasn't true at all. It, 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 it actually was not physiologic in any sense. That is, 
for example, if you take calories, we say calorie is a calorie and so on, but you understand that the body actually has no calorie receptors anywhere. Right. Like no animal has calorie receptors. So we're trying to pretend that a calorie of cookies, so say 100 calories of cookies, is the equivalent to 100 calories of egg or salad or broccoli, right? And it's like, but that's not true at all because the human body, as we know, responds to hormones. That is, that is the instructions that our body uses to say, what do you do with those calories? Are you going to use those calories to generate body heat? Are you going to use those calories to increase your energy level? Or are you going to use those calories and store them as fat? Because those are all the same calories, but what you do with those calories is different. And that depends on the hormonal instructions that we give our body. So the minute you put the cookies in your mouth, compared to if you eat an egg or a piece of salmon, the hormonal changes in our body are completely and utterly different. That is, the cookies are going to spike your insulin like mm -hmm. crazy. The fructose is going to go into your body. It's going to go into your liver. Like we've worked this out. It goes into your liver. It activates you know, phosphofructokinase. And there's a whole pathway that we know about. It causes fatty liver and all this kind of stuff. That's what happens when you eat 100 calories of cookies. When you eat 100 calories of egg, for example, well, it's protein and fat. So insulin does not go up it doesn't go up anywhere at all. Your blood glucose doesn't go up. Your insulin doesn't go up as opposed to those cookies where it does. So right. the instructions, the hormonal instruction, and, and on the flip side, you have activation of peptide YY, for example, and cholecystokinin, which are satiety hormones. And will tell your body that you don't want to eat anymore. Okay, so this is basic physiology. So those 200 calorie portions of foods have completely different effects. And the bottom line is not that a calorie is not a calorie, a calorie is a calorie, but it's a unit of heat. It's a unit of physics. It's not a unit of physiology. Yes. So the hormonal effect, therefore the physiologic response of our body is different. And, and that's the whole point. So some calories are more fattening than other calories. That is some calories like those cookies are going to activate the hormones that leads you more down the path of storing them as body fat. So for example, we know that insulin, which is sort of the master hormone of metabolism, when insulin goes up, we know what happens. Your body starts to store those calories, right? So you're going to turn off glycogen, um, uh, breaking down glycogenolysis. You're gonna break that and you stop that. You're gonna stop gluconeogenesis and you're gonna stop lipolysis, right? Insulin inhibits lipolysis. Right. That's been, been well known. So why is that not important anymore? Because if your insulin spikes up from those cookies, you can't burn body fat. You're actually going to do the opposite. You're going to synthesize glycogen storage in the liver, and you're going to increase de novo lipogenesis in the liver, right? This is, again, basic medical school physiology. But what it means is that that 100 calories of energy by spiking your insulin is going to go into storage and you're not going to have it available for use. You're not going to have it available because you've put it away in storage right away. You're not going to be able to use it for body heat generation. You, you know, you need energy for your liver, your kidney and so on, as opposed to the egg that you ate, which is now increasing mTOR, for example, from the protein, it's going to go into body fat. It's not going to turn on 
uh, insulin, therefore lipolysis is going to continue. So all these different things that happen with these two different portions of food and therefore very different effects. And, and, and so this whole idea that all you have to do is count calories was completely wrong. Like it was so simplistic. Like it's, it's mind boggling yeah. <laughs> how unphysiologic this whole calories description is. Uh, because you know you're you're an anesthesia you know like you, you want to measure the stuff that matters not the stuff that's completely uh, irrelevant right yeah. and what happens to our body in in those two situations is quite different so therefore if you want to go back and say you know the the, the bottom line is that some foods are more fattening than other foods that's not that that difficult a conclusion like cookies <laughs> are more fattening than broccoli well who ever gets fat eating broccoli right <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, that's the only implication of that. Like people say, oh, you're a calorie denier. I'm not denying calories. I'm telling you that those calories, effects of those calories are different. And some foods are more fattening than other foods. So therefore you must strenuously avoid those foods if you want to lose weight. And that's sort of how I got into it because the whole field was full of like, it was full of like garbage it was just a lot of sort of bro scientists who are all like you know oh you know there's all these people with calories in it's all about willpower like you got these skinny people be wanting to make themselves feel better because it's like i'm skinny therefore i have a lot of willpower it's like <laughs> no we gave people the wrong information that is that you just have to focus on calories and eating ice cream for dinner is okay as long as it's the same number of calories like well what garbage is that right your grandmother would have thought that you're just being ridiculous yeah um whereas uh, you know the whole the whole idea was just bad so that's how i got to fasting so then after that i thought okay well insulin is really your main hormone that you really have to worry about but what if you don't eat right what if you and that's what fasting is right a period of time that you don't eat so when i started talking about this in 2013 everybody thought it was the worst idea they'd ever heard of. And like, everybody knows that your metabolism goes down and you burn muscle and all that. So I went back in the literature and I said, well, what happens when you fast? Because again, this has been worked out for 50 plus years, at least at a minimum. And we know what happens when you fast. Well, your insulin goes down, but other hormones go up. These are the counter-regulatory hormones. So growth hormone goes up, cortisol goes up, sympathetic nervous system gets activated, noradrenaline goes up right? And these are all very well worked out counter regulatory pathways that happens when you don't eat. And you, you can also measure where your energy comes from. And you see that when you fast, all that really happens is that you burn your glycogen because you've stored it. You have a small period of gluconeogenesis where you're using some protein, and then you get into lipolysis where you're burning fat. And it's like, okay, well, that's perfect. <laughs> Because that's what I want people to do. I yeah. want them to use their fat. And that is literally the precise reason we even carry body fat is as a source of energy when there is no other sources of energy available. So you're using it exactly for what it was used for. And the other thing that was funny is that as, as a, I, I, I'm in hospital sort of half day every day, I tell people to fast all the time, right? If you're going pre-op, fasting yeah right yeah, yeah colonoscopy fasting icu patients who are intubated they're not eating all these patients who are sick with pneumonias and stuff they're not eating if you go for fasting blood work you're fasting like i'm telling people to fast all the time <laughs> and 
nothing bad happens. Right. Like nothing bad happens. In fact, what I used to see all the time was that people would come out of ICU, they'd get their pneumonia, they'd get intubated. They'd go into, into the ICU needing like 100 units a day and they'd come out of it off of all their insulin with normal blood sugars. It's like, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder what happened there. Because what they did was they actually reversed a lot of their type 2 diabetes because they got off their medications. And they did it by not eating. Well, why can't you do this in a controlled manner, right? And that's what I started to do. So we had these just incredible cases. So we do intermittent fasting, sort of short intermittent fasting, 24 hours uh, or so, three times a week. And we, had, we wrote up a case series in BMJ where these three patients all had about 20 years of type two diabetes on insulin, like they're 70 units of insulin or so. And we started them on a three times a week, 24 hours fasting, which is just like eating dinner to dinner, for example. All three of them got off all of their medications within a month. And a year later, their A1Cs are all less than 6%. So they're actually classified as non-diabetic. Wow. We took them off all their meds, got their A1Cs below 6%, and maintained it for several years. And that means they're non-diabetic. In other words, we completely reverse their type two diabetes just by using a dietary intervention that's been used for thousands of years because fasting has been around a long time that is free and available to everybody. And they're, they're, you know, what could be better, right? Why are we not offering this to people because this is really what we're trying to do. Because if you can prevent that diabetes, you can prevent like 50% of the stuff that I see, the heart attacks, the strokes, the cancers, the amputations, the blindness, the dialysis, like the whole thing, like the mind boggles at the sort of public health implications of what we could do with a free intervention, right? That's, that's crazy. All we need is the knowledge. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, a couple of things struck me there. You know, one is the calories and I guess, it's uh, when we talk about calories, it's actually, like you said, it's a physical experiment, right? Like you burn, you see how much heat is produced by whatever the substance is. And so, you know, there are things that have calories that actually don't provide any nutritional benefit to you or even you don't even get glucose from, right? Like you could burn cardboard and it has calorie yeah. <laughs> calories yeah, too. Like right. That was, I think it was a Mythbusters where they burned, you know, burnt a box of cereal and then the cereal itself. And it was like the same caloric content, but obviously they have, <laughs> they, they mean different things to your body. Obviously one is, you know, useless and one actually provides some energy. Um, and so I think you're right. It's like, it's very simplistic thinking, but it's uh, many things in medicine we do, I think that are, um, that we try and make it simplistic for us to understand. And we don't recognize that it is incredibly complex. Like, you know, I think the immune system is another great example where you say, oh, you just produce antibodies. You, but, you know, as we're seeing with the COVID, it's not a very simple story to try and understand the interplay of all these things and, you know, mitigation effort. There's all kinds of things that work together that make it so complicated. And I know when it comes to eating and being hungry, that it was that we didn't actually, I don't know, in our physiology, we didn't bother learning about lots of those hormones. We just learned about insulin and some of the, you know, growth hormones, but lots of the things like I was reading your book with, is it ghrelin? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Gorelin, yeah. yeah. Sort of like just that, the thing that makes you feel hungry, right? That gives you that, that hunger yeah. pain. Uh, you know, I, there's this huge interplay of all these things and I, and it, and it's, uh, you know, something that you just don't learn and it makes, it makes it what seems like a simple thing, a simple equation in and out is actually yeah. a, a much more complicated interplay. You know, 
you could even argue eating an apple is it takes more energy to even burn and cons- and to get the nutrients out of an apple than it is like a Dorito, for instance, yeah, probably yeah. right. And so there's you know maybe a benefit for eating that as well as well as you know other things too. But yeah, and I think if you look at hunger, this is like you know one of the things that's really interesting is like if you look at ghrelin as a as a marker for hunger, people always think that hunger. Is a, is a function of not having food in your stomach, but that's actually not true at all. It's actually hormonally determined. So that if you look at circadian rhythms and you look at the point in the day where people are the least hungry, it's 8 a.m. So this is just sort of overall over many people, 8 a.m. 8 a.m. is when people in general are the least hungry in a day and 8 p.m. is when they're the most hungry. So 8 a.m. is the point of the day where you've actually gone the longest without food, right? right. And yet yeah. you are the least hungry because tons of people are not hungry uh, for breakfast time, right? And breakfast tends to be the smallest meal. So therefore, this is very interesting because it's not that, oh, if you have nothing in your stomach, you're going to get hungry. When they do studies of fasting, 24-hour fasting, for example, what they find is that uh, you get these peaks in ghrelin. And if you don't eat, say you don't eat lunch, well, you get this peak in ghrelin. If you simply ignore it, your ghrelin by say three, four o'clock actually goes down to baseline. So you're actually the same level of hunger if you ate or if you didn't eat. That's very interesting because we've all experienced this. So when you're, you know, you're in the OR or something, right? You miss your lunch and you're hungry at one o'clock by five o'clock as you're about the same as if you ate or if you didn't eat. Right. And it's all hormonally driven. And that's one of the really important things because if you skip your lunch or dinner or whatever, what happens is that your body simply takes the calories it needs from your body stores, which is body fat. And therefore your hunger still goes down. It's a wave that passes. So you're not going to get overwhelmed by hunger. You just have to understand what's happening so that you can get through it, which is super, super interesting because if you know that, then you can start to go and say, okay, well, let's, let's, you going to do longer fast or more frequent fast because of the benefits of what's going to happen. That is, if you don't eat, your blood sugars will come down, which is good. If you continue to not eat, then you'll lose weight, which is, again, is good. If you lose weight, of course, your type 2 diabetes will reverse as opposed to simply focusing on blood sugars, which is the, the wrong sort of measure. You're not focusing on the disease. You're focusing on the symptom of the disease, which is the high blood sugar, which is what we treat with insulin, for example. So completely, you know, you really have to take that sort of look at everything through this sort of physiological hormonal standpoint, and then you'll understand, hey, what we're doing sometimes is not quite correct, like insulin, for example. It's like we treat type 2 diabetics with insulin. It's like, you know, that type 2 diabetics are hyperinsulinemic, right? Right. It's like, why are you treating a hyperinsulinemic state? with more insulin, are you not just going to make it worse? And the answer is yes, because what we know is that if you treat that patient with type 2 diabetes with insulin, they're going to gain weight. And if they gain weight, their diabetes will get worse. As their diabetes gets worse, you're going to give them more insulin. So you're stuck in a vicious cycle. What you should do is not eat. Therefore, you're, you're going to lose weight. As you lose weight, you need less insulin, which is going to make you lose weight. Now you're in a virtuous cycle instead of a, a vicious cycle, right? So the whole, the whole, the whole thing with nutrition and stuff, 
it's so unphysiologic. We don't think about things the right way because we're focused on calories. Same in the ICU. I don't know if you do much ICU work, but I, I try to save away from the ICU. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that was uh, for a long time was that people need early feeding, right? That was a big debate right. for, uh-huh. for years and years and years. And if you're if you're in the ICU for a long time, I I agree you need you need to have some feeding. But if you're in it for a short period, say you get COVID and you're there for like you know for a few days, not a few weeks, but a few days, there was a push to you know as soon as you get into the ICU to stick an NG tube down and start feeding people. Well, again, let's think about the physiology of what happens because you understand that when people get sick, when you get the flu. The last thing you want to do is eat. And that's a normal physiologic response to stop eating. It's anorexia. You do not want to eat when you have the flu. Why? Because let's think about it. If you have an infection, what your body wants to do is lower the blood glucose as low as possible because those bacteria love glucose, right? So now you're going to switch into sort of fasting metabolism, which means that you're going to actually burn fat, which is going to give you free, like fatty acids. So most of your body runs on fatty acids. You produce ketones for your brain, right? And the bacteria have a lot, lot more trouble metabolizing fatty acids compared and ketones compared to glucose. So you want to lock down that glucose at the same time, you're going to increase growth hormone. You're going to increase sympathetic nervous tone, and you're going to increase noradrenaline, which is going to do what support your blood pressure which is what they do in the ICU with, yeah, right. you know, all these, you know, pressers and stuff. So by feeding, early feeding in an acutely sick person, you're actually short-circuiting all the natural preventative mechanisms of what's happening there. And therefore, every single study of early feeding in the ICU was negative. And people are, I don't know why, I don't know why. Well, I'll tell you why. Because your body <laughs> is trying to make you not eat for very good reasons. Like there's very good reasons why you shouldn't be. And so these are the sort of things that, that, that make no sense. And I, and I found them everywhere. So in obesity medicine, there's a ton of this. In type two diabetes, there's a ton of this. And in cancer, there's also the same sort of, uh, sort of cancer is a little different, but in terms of the way we think about the disease, it, 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 there's been a lot of uh, sort of ongoing change from that as well. Yeah, I, I had, so I'm not someone who needs to lose a lot of weight. And so I didn't, I'd not really paid much attention to dieting sort of things, except, you know, you'll hear about things people talk about in the operating room or, or whatever. Uh, so when I read your book, I thought, well, this is interesting. I mean, I'm cheap. So I think, well, this seems like a, something <laughs> that I could do. I've done, I've done a few, um, you know, uh, dietary changes just for like a month or something, kind of like a cleansings and stuff. And I, th- I thought, well, I don't know if I could, if I could even do fasting. So I thought, well, I'll just try it. I mean, like you said, it's, it costs nothing and it, it's harmless in the sense that, you know, yeah. if at any time you felt like you're not able to tolerate, you just eat something. <laughs> it's, not, <Right. laughs> it's, it's not the end of the world. And, um, so, and I don't know if it was because I'm an anesthesiologist and I often miss meals and I have very erratic sort of dietary schedule. So f- for me, it was not that hard. And so what I did initially is I thought, well, I'll just see, how long I can go. I'll just see if I can go a whole day and see how that goes. Um, so I would just eat dinner and then I didn't eat until breakfast was like 20, it'd be like 30 hours later or something like that. So I'd skip a whole day and it was amazing that I would get just like in your book, you get the, you wake up in the morning, you're not hungry at all. You get hungry around lunchtime ish, you know, I, that 
commonly I would miss that meal anyway in the OR. It would be very, you know, random whether I'd get it lunch or not. So it's not a big deal. Dinner, I would definitely get a little hungry. But the one thing you definitely notice is that um, that uh, you are not eating oftentimes because you're hungry or because there's a reason to be eating, right? I mean, I think that's one thing you learn with any sort of dietary change. You realize that well, oftentimes you're bored or you're walking by the yeah. pantry and just go grab something just because it's something to do, which is weird. Yeah. But that's just, I guess, our age of abundance where you just have it available all the time. But I would notice that too, even when I broke my fast in the morning, I wasn't really that hungry to eat, to eat a, you know, breakfast. I would eat it because I thought, well, I did my day and, and I'll just, yeah. this will be my day of eating. Uh, and, but it it's very strange because I thought, well, after 30 hours, you think you'd be really hungry. Like, you know, yeah. like that meal, you'd, <laughs> like that meal, your body's like, okay, that was, you know, fun experiment. Let's go back to sort of normal. And I just didn't really experience that. I, I didn't extend it beyond a day. I, I just did it like three times a week for about a month or two. And, if anything, it just sort of became socially a little bit difficult, you know, yeah. being the only one in the family, like, you know, just sitting at the table, drinking a glass of water and people are eating dinner. It's just kind of weird. And so, um, so I totally think it's something that anyone could probably do. I mean, I, if yeah. I can, I mean, maybe it's because it's unique because I, my job, it's a little less reliable when I eat and stuff, but I think it's more a habit sort of when you're eating than anything. I think so. I think so. And that's one of the things that um, is, is often surprising to people that they actually don't need to eat as often as they thought they did. Like it's, it's certainly one of the things that is ingrained in us that, oh, you have to eat, you have to eat, you have to eat, but it's actually not true at all. And in fact, if you look at the societal norms, they've actually been quite bad because in the 70s. So if you look at the NHANES surveys, which is the a big American survey of sort of a lot of stuff, but they included dietary habits. So in the 1977, what they found was that most Americans are eating three times a day. And by about 2004, 2005, it's about six times a day. So people are actually eating all the time. And you see this even in the schools, like, oh, we're going to give them an after school snack. We're going to give them uh, a bedtime snack. We're going to give them a snack when they're playing soccer in between the halves and stuff. It's like, um, why? Why are you doing this? Because it doesn't make any sense. Like, why do you want people to eat more? And it's like, well, they think, oh, okay, because it's, uh, you know, they need it or it keeps their metabolism stoked. It's like, one, there's no evidence, there's no evidence whatsoever that is, that is true in any sense. There's this idea that you should eat six or eight times a day. And it's like, why? Why would you want to do that? Because if you take a small amount of food, that, and then stop, that's what an appetizer is, okay? It doesn't make you less hungry. It makes you more hungry. Because yes. once you get into eating and thinking about it, you get more hungry, your saliva increases, all that. So we know appetizers are going to increase your appetite. So we're going to, you know, eat a small amount of food and then stop before we're full and do that six times a day. It's like that takes an incredible amount of willpower. It's ridiculous because what you should do if you're not hungry is not eat. Right. And, you know, in the 70s, if you wanted an after school snack, your mom would say, no, you're going to ruin your dinner. And if you wanted a bedtime snack, she'd say, no, you should have ate more at dinner. And that was that. Right. And, and, and it was fine. And that's how people stayed relatively trim without even thinking about it, because now you get 
cookies everywhere, right? You have a meeting at 1030 and somebody's ordered right. bagels and you have a 230 meeting. Like, or if you go to a medical conference, they're the worst. Oh, yeah. Like you have a full breakfast and then at 1030, they wheel out the muffins. And then at 12, you have a full lunch. And then at two, they have, wheel out like the granola bars and stuff. And then you have dinner. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> didn't you eat breakfast? Why do you need a snack? Like, didn't you eat lunch? Like, there's no reason for all this sort of stuff and and so but it gets ingrained into the habits of of us that we should eat all the time and that's one of the things that is really bad because if you eat all the time of course you're going to continuously stimulate insulin and insulin is going to tell your body to store those calories as fat so i don't think it's a willpower thing it's a societal thing because obviously if if the entire society is changing, it's not because they've suddenly lost willpower in 1977, which is why <laughs> I think it's completely ridiculous. Like our dietary habits changed in 1977, right? We went from eating sort of all foods to low fat foods. That was the biggest change we've ever seen and obesity increased. It wasn't a change in you know, loss of willpower or people didn't like exercise anymore. Or they stopped caring about sports and they stopped playing. So like who stopped playing soccer, right? The kids still play soccer. Like you go out in the streets, kids are still playing, right? It wasn't that like, yes, there are video games and stuff, but that's always been the case. Yeah. Um, so let's, why don't you discuss a little bit more of the other benefits of fasting? Because, you know, I think the, the weight loss, the diabetes are ones that are I think more obvious. I mean, obviously if you eat less, you, you know, gain less, you lose weight, but I know there are a number of studies on, for instance, um, longevity that, you know, calorie restriction is usually what leads, which is the only thing that sort of is known to help with longevity. What other things, or maybe the better question is what is it about eating and say glucose and inf inflammatory, you know, markers that happens that sort of changes things with cancer and other things with your health? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. Of course, the data is much less uh, firm because a lot of it is animal data because you can't get a lot of longevity data on humans. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that lately there's been a lot of research into several sort of areas that have pointed to the fact that caloric restriction and fasting as one form of this is uh, particularly beneficial in longevity for several reasons. One, if you look at autophagy, so autophagy is this sort of um, state, it, it, it gained prominence sort of in 2016 when sort of the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded for research into autophagy. And it's very, uh, there's not a lot of research into it, but it's, it's this process in our bodies and it's preserved from sort of yeast on all the way to humans where if you don't eat, then your body actually starts to catabolize certain proteins, so organelles in the body. And everybody thinks, well, you know, you're breaking down protein, this is really bad, but it's actually very, very good. Because the point is that when you break down proteins, uh, you're getting rid of all the sort of old, the junky stuff. And then if you need to, you can rebuild those. So this is how the body essentially rejuvenates itself. So the Nobel Prize winner, um, the Japanese researcher says it's sort of like a cellular recycling system. Because when you think about renovation or rejuvenation, the first step is breaking down. That is, if you want to redo your sort of bathroom, the first thing you've got to do is throw out that avocado green tub and matching toilet, right? Yeah. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to throw it out. Because if you don't, you can't put something nice in. 
right? So you got to throw it out first. And it's the same everywhere that you look. So if you look at our bodies, for example, when we uh, build muscle, you start by tearing the muscle. So exercise induces micro tears in your muscle right. that your body rebuilds so that it's stronger. When you rebuild bone, you first activate the osteoclast to break down bone. That is how you make stronger bone is to break it down and rebuild with the osteoblast, right? So it's the same thing. When you put an astronaut up into space and you take away the stress on his muscles, he develops severe sarcopenia. When you take away the stress on the bones, you get severe osteopenia. So you need that stress. You need that's that's how you get stronger is to break down first, then you rebuild. And this is the process of sort of breaking down. So autophagy is this thing that actually gets activated during fasting. So a lot of people sort of linked the two and said, well, if you're looking at a mechanism for staying healthy, for keeping everything working, maybe this is a very, very powerful way to do that because we have all that older data on caloric restriction, which is really the only way in animals that you can increase longevity is to, is to restrict uh, calories. But fasting is one way to do that and maybe a more powerful way than sort of chronic, you know, low grade intake of calories, which is very unphysiologic. Nobody sort of eats like that. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing that uh, was very interesting is from a uh, cancer standpoint. And one of the things that we've recognized is that if you look at um, attribution risk for cancer, so you look at all the things that cause cancer and you try and say, well, how much do they contribute to cancer? You do something called a population attribution fraction and tobacco smoke is the highest and it's about 35% of attributable risk of cancer is due to smoking. Diet is actually around 30%, so very, very, very high and way above everything else. So all the stuff we worry about like pesticides and chemicals and stuff, like one or 2% at the yeah. most. Diet is way up there. And the question is what part of the diet is going to contribute to cancer because we know it's a big part. That is, if you take a Japanese woman in Japan and move that woman to San Francisco, her risk of breast cancer approximately doubles or triples within a few generations. So it's not genetics, it's, it's the environment. Same for prostate cancer. So we know that there's a huge dietary uh, consideration. We thought it was dietary fat, but we did some large studies like the Women's Health Initiative and found that it wasn't really dietary fat. But what does seem to be increasingly evident is that it's due to obesity. And obesity-related cancers are now recognized as, you know, there are 13 cancers that the WHO recognizes obesity related. And obesity is a state of hyperinsulinemia. So type 2 diabetes sees the same thing. So you might ask the question, why is insulin such a incredible sort of risk factor for cancer? And the answer is that insulin is a nutrient sensor, and it's also a very potent growth factor. That is, when you eat, insulin goes up. So the function of insulin is actually as a nutrient sensor. That's how we think of it mostly, right? But if you go back in evolutionary times, in more primitive animals, insulin actually is a primarily a growth factor. So we know insulin-like growth factor, for example, yeah. is a potent growth factor. And anything that's going to tip your scales in terms of growth is going to increase cancer. So in, in Ecuador, there is a group of these dwarves called the Laron dwarves who actually have no insulin-like growth factor because of a genetic mutation. So they're dwarfs, they're very short. 
and they're actually completely immune to cancer. So it's, it's incredible because their relatives have like, you know, cancer and they can't even find a single case of cancer in these uh, Laren dwarves. So we know that it's a growth factor. And one of the ways to lower insulin is to make sure you're a normal weight, but fasting is a very powerful way to lower insulin. So it makes sense from several angles that maintaining a normal sort of body weight, uh, you know, and by extension, sort of maintaining a normal insulinemic state is going to be important to reducing the risk of cancer and also potentially increasing uh, longevity. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of sort of interesting areas. And, and then you look back and say, well, if you look back and say, well, what did people do in the past? Like these ancient people in terms of wellness? Well, they did these cleanses or fasts or whatever, purification, they would not eat for a period of time. So you look at Christianity during Lent, there's fasting, Judaism um, during Yom Kippur, there's fasting, uh, Muslim traditions, there's the uh, Ramadan, you look at Buddhist traditions, Hindu traditions, Mormonism, every single religion has these periods of fasting sort of built in to them because they believe even when there wasn't a whole lot of food available, you know, we're not, you know, it's like today, even when there was a, not a whole lot of food available, that it was intrinsically beneficial to periodically not eat. And I think that they probably are more right than wrong because this, this sort of ancient belief, which has sort of passed itself down through thousands of years, right? We know it's been going on for thousands of years. Um, we don't do it because it's harmful to us. Like, we're, we're not trying to kill ourselves here. Right, yeah. We're trying to make ourselves healthier. And maybe this is a very good way to do it to every so often just knock your insulin levels way down because these nutrient sensors, what they do, the reason the nutrient sensors are actually growth factors. They're actually like, if you look at insulin, one of the big re revelations of the last 20 years is that insulin through PI3K has a huge number of pro-growth effects. And it makes sense because if, if your body should only grow when there's enough nutrients. So mm -hmm. the nutrient sensors have to be linked very tightly to growth. So if you have uh, no nutrients, you don't want your cells to grow because if your cells grow and there's no nutrients, you're gonna die. So you actually shut down growth and go more into a maintenance repair mode which is very good for old, you know, for adults, because you don't want to grow. Growth is bad, generally. Yeah, for only, only one direction, right? <laughs> that's right. So that's the point is that by, by doing the fasting, by periodically doing it, you're trying to shift your body away from growth and into this sort of maintenance and repair mode. Let's tear things down. Because again, when you break all that down through autophagy, the one thing you've done is you've increased growth hormone right? That's one of the counter-regulatory hormones. Right. So therefore, anything that you need is going to get rebuilt. All the muscles you need, all the proteins you need, that is going to get rebuilt. So it's like, wow, this is a really, really, you know, well thought out system, well worked out system of, of, of keeping people alive and healthy because you're breaking down all the crappy stuff. It's like a spring cleaning. You get rid of all your junk out the door and anything you need, 
you, you get some new stuff back in. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, this sort of uh, idea that, you know, fasting may have all these incredible benefits. And of course, I have to, I have to say that there's not a lot of data that you can, that you can point to that because right. this is all theoretical. But theoretically, you know, it, it, it could be very, very important. So then you say, okay, well, if it's all theoretical benefits, what's the risk? It's like the risk is almost zero. As long <laughs> as you have body fat, the risk of doing a 24-hour fast, which everybody who goes for a colonoscopy gets, is, is almost zero, right? You're going to need about half a pound of body fat to fast that period of time. Most people have 40 pounds plus. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> right. So you'd say there's even benefit for doing, I mean, I know lots of people do a, a was it like a 20 hour fast or something? Was that, do you think that's, you get those benefits at such a short fast like that where you eat one meal a day, essentially? I think you do. I think that, you know, um, as you get into the fasting, like it's hard to differentiate because there's not the research in terms yeah, of topology sure. when it actually starts, but you know that the glycogen stores run out somewhere around sort of 18 to 24 hours. And at that point, you're starting to ramp up the gluconeogenesis. And that's really what you want. You actually need to break down that protein. That's where the sort of benefits happen, getting rid of the old protein and rebuilding new protein. And people always worry, oh, you have to eat protein, you have to eat protein. But you know what? If your body is protein deficient, it doesn't just flush those proteins out the toilet, right? You don't right. just pee it out. You can reclaim all of that through your urine, right? The body is just not that stupid. It's just like those people who say, oh, fasting causes muscle loss. I'm like, okay, well, let's think about this for a second. So the body stores energy as glycogen or as body fat. And the minute that you need it, it's going to burn muscle. Like, do you think <laughs> our body is really just that stupid? <laughs> like, yeah. seriously. I was just going to say, I imagine a lot of that is because you look at the studies of people who are bedridden and they're not eating and they're fasting that way involuntarily. And so they have muscle loss because they're, again, as you mentioned earlier, they're not stressing and, you know, walking is important and physical activity to stress your, you know, your, your musculoskeletal system. Right. I mean, that's, uh, you yeah. can take it. A, I think, yeah. you can, I think the people say you could take an Olympic athlete, set them in bed strict bed rest for two weeks and they'll be barely able to walk after the two weeks. As you said, yeah. similar to astronauts, they're always up there like on the treadmill and stuff, trying doing whatever they can to try and maintain some muscle mass yeah. without and gravity. This is what I always find interesting is because people always say muscle, muscle, muscle. It's like, well, muscles grow or they don't grow based on the stress you put on them, not on what you eat. Yeah. Because as long as you're eating enough protein, like you're not completely protein deficient. And it's like, you know, when you have Severe protein deficiency, what you get is, you know, those picture of those kids with the core, which is that big gut and, yeah. you know, wasted muscles. Like we're a long way from there, right? It's, it's a long, long way from that. Um, and your body, you know, is going to lose muscle just because you're not putting any stress on it. That's how it loses muscle, not because you've changed what you eat or you're not eating or whatever. As long as you have that sort of minimal, minimal amount of protein, you're going to be able to do it. So people get all, all worried, like, you know, about the, the, these changes in muscle mass. And sometimes they, they measure lean mass thinking that lean mass is muscle mass, but it's not. Remember, there's a ton of other proteins that are in our bodies, like, connective tissue and yeah, skin. Right. So the interesting thing about skin, I'll tell you, is that, so we use a lot of fasting in our clinics and we've treated hundreds and hundreds of people. And even when people have lost a hundred plus pounds, we haven't actually sent anybody 
for skin removal surgery, like zero people. And it's because I think that the fasting, because you're getting into that period of gluconeogenesis, that your body's actually starting to break down protein. And part of that is going to be the connective tissue and the blood vessels and the skin that is excessive because you know your body can use that for energy. If you look at pictures of prisoners of war and Japan in the World War II, if you look at pictures of like, you know, uh, concentration camp survivors, there's no extra flappy skin anywhere, right? Your body has metabolized it, has catabolized it for energy. So you have the ability to do that. But if you never fast, and this is the way that people lose weight these days, they eat less, but they, they eat it constantly. So they never get into that period of gluconeogenesis. You're never going to be able to get rid of that skin because you've never been able to get to the point where you're going to burn a bit of the protein. And that's, I think, one of the, the, the issues. So, you know, for people who want to deal with the, the loose skin, that's one way you can try to deal with it. And again, there's nothing wrong with the fasting. This is the whole thing that I found so strange <laughs> is that before 1970, fasting is thought to be very good for you in a number of ways, even when there's no obesity. And now when there's a ton of obesity, fasting is considered bad. So it's like, okay, here's the regular advice. Eat, 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 eat six, seven, eight times a day to lose weight. Well, how does that work exactly? If you're eating all the time, how are you going to lose weight? This is just physiology, like a medical school physiology. And yet it gets passed into the system. People repeat it enough that uh, the endocrinologists and all this are, are, are talking about it. It's like, it makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. Just like the diabetes, giving insulin to a hyperinsulinemic patient. That makes no sense. Like, sure, you'll make the sugars better, but you're going to make the diabetes worse because you're making the hyperinsulinemic state worse. And that's the whole point. Why don't you fast instead? Yeah, that's so interesting <clears throat> with the skin because I obviously I, I work at a plastic surgery center, and so I'll see these surgeries, brachioplasties, uh, hip plasties, and people who've had usually uh, it's most often it's weight loss surgery. They so they have a partial gastrectomy or, um, you know, staple stomach or gastric bypass. And then they'll come back a year and a half later, they've lost 90 pounds, but they have not lost their 90 pounds of skin. That was, well, the, the skin that was covering that extra 90 yeah. pounds have lost. <laughs> right. And, um, so it's, it, it totally makes sense that you, that your body would, I mean, your body works towards homeostasis and, and it is, I think it works efficiently. I think where we get tripped up is we think we understand it fully and we, yeah. And we have to accept, I think, a little bit of humility that we don't understand exactly how it works all the time or all the interplays, right? And that's yeah. probably part of the problems that where we get ourselves into trouble when it comes to our decisions. Yeah. And I think that this is the thing where you say, well, if somebody, if people have been doing it for a long period of time, then there might be some rationale yes. in it. That is, it's not a completely newfangled thing. So it's like you look at eating six times a day or eight times a day. It's like, that's completely new. Nobody in history had ever done that before because, you know, nobody's going out in their field and then, you know, half an hour later walking back and cooking up a little bit of, you know, uh, pork or whatever. They weren't doing that, right? So it's, it's the convenience foods that are pushing this sort of eating and snacking and all that. And it's like, if nobody has ever done this before until about 1970, 1980, and since then, we've had this huge obesity epidemic. Hey, maybe the two things go hand in hand. Yeah, maybe maybe so. it's not a good thing. 
So it's like, uh, you know, I don't know what is simpler. Like if you want to lose weight, then don't eat. That's all we're saying. Like it's, it's a way to do it. It's not, it's not the be all and end all. Of course, there's lots of other things that go into good nutrition and so on, but it's at least one tool in your tool belt. And we have so, so completely forgotten about this tool when it's in fact the most powerful tool, because it's like, if you're trying to lose weight, well, you cannot go lower than zero. So no matter what diet you do, fasting is going to be as powerful as you can get it. And the other thing is that there is no limit to the upper end. That is, if you eat a paleo diet, you're eating a good paleo diet and you're not losing weight. Well, can you get more paleo than paleo? It's like, no, not really, not really at all. But if you fast, you can go one day, you can go seven days, you can go 20 days, right? There's no upper bound to your power that you have in terms of creating the weight loss that you need to get healthy again, right? Especially in these, if you're talking about a disease of excess weight or excess sugars, well, then let your body use the fat or use the sugar. That's all you're doing, right? And, and, and this is the whole thing is that you're, you're, you're giving people the option that's been sort of taken away from them. It's like you took the most powerful tool, the most appropriate tool, one within these incredible events that that's not even that hard. Like you've done it, I've done it. Like it's not that hard. Yeah. And you've said, never do it. It's like, why? <laughs> why does modern nutrition and the doctors and the dietitians say, never skip breakfast, never skip a meal? It's like, how does that make sense? From a physiologic standpoint, how does that even make sense? And that this is what I write about a lot because it's like, it's so illogical. It's just this purely this, this is what we've been taught and this is what we're going to tell people, right? And it's like, well, this is what's been happening. You know, wow, we've had this huge obesity epidemic. You've been telling people eat low fat foods, eat, you know, margarine, eat six times a day. It's like, it's not working. What do you, so my wife has a problem if she were just, if she uh, preps for colonoscopy uh, and she fasts for the 24 hours or she has a problem with migraines and her headaches get really bad because I think she has a blood sugar issue. She's not obese in any way, but um, what do you say to people who have that problem? I'm sure you've run into that where people have just, they have some sort of problem trying to actually restrict calories and they just have side effects, I guess you call it. I don't know what better yeah, term. Would yeah. Be. So, so we go into this a little bit about certain, like the side effects of fasting, which usually happen when you first start doing it. So if you're not used to doing it, then this can happen. Headaches is actually one of the common ones. So very often people, when they start fasting, will get headaches. Luckily it goes away, but people prone to have headaches, they may have problems, in which case you may have to modify the fast a little bit so that you're not getting uh, those side effects. I mean, if you're prepping for colonoscopy, it's different because you can't do anything, but yeah. you can do things like sort of ketogenic diets, which is very, very low carb, which can help you transition into this state. Um, because the thing is that if you're eating mostly fat, which is what the ketogenic diet is, whether the body metabolizes, metabolizes fat, body fat or dietary fat, it's actually almost the same. So sure. there's very, it's very easy to transition uh, into that. Um, but there are other things that happen during fasting that people may find difficult, like, you know, cramps. And, and this is what the, the complete guide to fasting goes into. It's, you know, the cramps and the, the diarrhea, sometimes the constipation. So there are things that happen in the past. You know, you could just ask your friend who is fasting and would tell you what to do nowadays. 
nobody does that anymore. So that's why we try and set it out um, on that. I mean, those are the, this is the, those are the practical things. So the complete guide to fasting is mostly about the practical stuff, and then the code books are mostly about scientific stuff. The, the obesity code deals with more the theoretical sort of underpinning of uh, mm-hmm. calories theory and really how you need to think about obesity to be successful. Same with the diabetes code, which is really talking about type two diabetes, uh, understanding that it too is a disease of hyperinsulinemia rather than you know anything else. So if insulin's too high, then lower insulin. That's yeah. your solution. Don't give more, right? That's a terrible idea. And the cancer code, which is that's the one coming out in November, uh, also talks about how we're, the way we think about cancer has changed so much in the last, uh, say, even 10 years, um, which is leading to these new paradigms of treatment, including immunotherapy and so on. Right. Well, I, you know, especially we're going to wrap up here, but especially when you're looking at COVID-19 right now um, and one of the biggest risk factors, of course, is obesity uh, and and all the diseases that are associated with hypertension, heart disease, kidney, you know, renal disease. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is possibly a strategy if you, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, hope, but hopefully to be in the best shape as possible when you yeah. eventually are infected with it, which I think, I think everyone is going to be challenged with COVID or SARS-CoV-2 yeah. at some point in their lifetime and to be in as, you know, best for other reasons, you should be in good shape anyway. But this is obviously maybe a good a good uh, push uh, to to re- to consider taking care of yourself. And so I think this is probably an effective strategy. And I mean, if I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Doctor Fong, thank you so much uh, for joining the Paradox. Where can people follow you to find more of your stuff and to keep up with what you're up to? Yeah, so we have a a website. uh, It's called thefastingmethod.com. So there's links to all the blogs. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of blog posts there. That's all free. There's also a paid program for helping people with the sort of education as well as the tools to to make it easier to fast. Uh, So that's thefastingmethod.com. And then you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram. That's at Dr. Jason Fung. That's Dr. Jason Fung. Uh, you can follow me there um, and then, uh, or you can get the books which are available sort of everywhere. Yeah. Those will all be linked to the show notes at theparadox.com slash 102. So we finally crossed the century mark in our shows. So Dr. Fung, thanks so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. 